Good morning. It's Thursday, the 28th of December, and this is Govind Rajay Thiraj coming to you from Mumbai with a special edition of the Core Report. We are taking a year in break from our news reports to look back at 2023 and look ahead at 2024 across different aspects of business, economy, and climate. Today, I'm in conversation with Dr. Mekla Krishnan, partner at the McKinsey Global Institute, McKinsey's business and economics research arm. This is a core report with Govind Raj Athiraj. Mekla, thank you so much for joining me. So, uh, first question as we start off, COP28 concluded in Dubai a few weeks ago. Now, in a very broad sense, before we dive in a little bit, what did it achieve and not? And I'm coming from the point that the headline clearly was that we've agreed to a reduction in fossil fuel usage. Uh, this also came in the backdrop of uh, some interesting opposition by countries like Saudi Arabia and so on. And yet, the larger group of 200 countries seem to have agreed that, you know, we need to move in this direction and they seem to have at least signed off on it. Now, whether that will happen in what form, we don't know. But I'd like to first get your thoughts on where we are in terms of what we achieved at COP28 in specific and the larger target of net zero or overall climate adaptation and mitigation in general. That's an excellent question and one um, I've been reflecting on a lot myself. I was uh, in Dubai for for COP28. I think there were many things achieved in the formal COP28 process and I'll talk about that in a, in a minute. I also wanted to talk about the things that happened around the COP28 process, right? And one of the things that I, in particular, was heartened to see was the amount of energy and excitement on the part of the private sector and um, civil society that was present and engaged. And at least in the private sector conversations we had, this was becoming less a, a conversation about should we transition and is this the right thing to do, uh, but really a conversation about how to make sustainability part of the value creation agenda for the private sector. And, and we can talk more about that later on in this conversation. But when it comes to the, the formal COP28 process, I think there were many strides made in terms of commitments on the part of countries on, on a variety of dimensions. The first, indeed, as you said, was the inclusion of language around fossil fuels in the formal commitments, and really the language around transitioning away from fossil fuels and doing so in a just, orderly, equitable way. And I think to some extent that both spoke to the idea of the imperative to transition away from fossil fuels if we are to achieve net zero, but also the recognition that for many parts of the world, there is this balance to be struck between reducing emissions, but also doing so in an affordable, reliable way and in a way that expands energy access. So, so you know, getting to both parts of the agenda and the language. That was one. The second, I would say, is the inclusion of other parts of the agenda beyond fossil fuels, which I was actually quite heartened to see. So there was language around methane. Um, there was language related to adaptation and loss and damage. And I think that's a really important highlight because I think we often focus on fossil fuels and we often focus on CO2, but that's just one part of this very complicated puzzle that we need to solve. We also need to think about greenhouse gases beyond carbon dioxide. We need to think about the transition of a broader system beyond just fossil fuel as energy supply. We need to think about energy demand. We need to think about food systems. And we need to think about the adaptation imperative hand in hand with the transition imperative. And so I think there was a lot of recognition in, in the language uh, around this broader agenda. And I think that was exciting to see. Now, of course, the question that this all leaves us with is enormous commitment and I, I think a sub substantive increase in the, the degree of commitment. How do we now go from commitment to action is the question that we're all left with. That's the pivot that the world now needs to make, moving from these commitments, which I think, as I, as I said, were broad-based, 
Um, and I was actually quite heartened to see moving from those commitments to actually action to start to to move the the agenda forward. You know, going into COP28, as McKinsey, you work with corporations who, for example, have made net zero pledges. All of them may not be working with you, but there are some 8,000 corporations who've made pledges. There are many countries who've made pledges. So what is this adding up to at a macro level? And can you share some micro examples that you've seen which are illustrative and perhaps encouraging? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the things we did in the lead up to COP was a bit of our own stock take, right? So the UN did a stock take during COP. We did our own version of a stock take um, in research that we published in, a, in advance of COP. And the work, which was entitled An Affordable, Reliable, Competitive Path to Net Zero, the starting point of the work was let's actually understand where the world is today. What we did for that was we looked at about uh, 25 different scenarios that look at the current trajectory of emissions that the world is on. And these are scenarios from the IPCC, from the IEA, McKinsey's own scenarios. And what they tell us is based on currently implemented policies, current expectations of how technology will evolve, the world is nowhere near getting to net zero by 2050, which is really the goals that we're striving towards under these pledges and under the Paris Agreement. We would not get to net zero even by the end of the century under our current trajectory of emissions. And warming is expected to be anywhere from two and a half to four degrees Celsius by the end of the century. So compare that to the goals of the Paris Agreement, which is ideally one and a half degrees Celsius, certainly well below two degrees Celsius. And so you put all of that together. And what that tells you is there is still a long way to go to get us to where we need to be. Now, if you start to add up commitments that have been made and pledges that have been made, maybe that two and a half to four degrees Celsius gets closer to two degrees Celsius or below two degrees Celsius. But those are still commitments on paper. They haven't been translated to policy and they haven't been translated to action. So that's the glass half empty view. The glass half full view is, in many ways, we have seen meaningful momentum towards net zero. And we see that in many, many different leading indicators of that, right? So we've seen, indeed, commitments and pledges, as, as you described. But we've also seen climate finance start to flow. As a result of that climate finance flowing, we've seen increased penetration of things like solar and wind in the generation mix. New generation capacity of solar and wind in the overall mix is about 75%. So of all the investment we're making on power, the power system, uh, each year about 75% of that is in renewables. Um, we've seen things like electric vehicles become an increasing share of car sales. We've seen many new technologies start to come down in costs. And so there are many leading indicators of momentum towards net zero. But I think still a long way to go if we are to bend the emissions curve to the degree that we need to. So you, you talked about electric vehicles being increasing percentage. Uh, 15% of, uh, I think, new car sales is electric. I was talking to uh, the head of the International Solar Alliance, which is based out of India. And he was saying that almost 95% of new capacity in power generation is actually renewable. So that's clearly good, but clearly it's not enough to offset, as you're saying, what we're seeing. So if you were to break it down a little further, what is the specific examples that is leading when it comes to corporations, for instance, leading this change and the reasons why it's not happening? Yeah, so maybe let me start with the latter, right? Why is it not happening? And I would break that down in two ways. So the first thing to think about in terms of it happening is, uh, which I think is is quite underappreciated in the conversation around the transition is this is a massive, complex, physical transformation that lies ahead of us. What we're talking about is rebuilding in the next three decades, 
entire energy material land use systems that have developed over the last 200 years, right? It is a dramatic transformation of how we supply energy, how we consume energy, and it also is much beyond the energy system. And so let me give you some examples of what that then means, right? What that means is a massive scale up of the amount that we're spending toward the transition. Today, we're spending about one and a half trillion dollars on what I would call low emissions technologies, things like electric vehicles, things like renewable energy. Going forward, we would need to spend seven trillion dollars every year for the next three decades on average if we are to get on this net zero path. So while we've seen climate finance scale up, there's still a substantially more scale up of that that needs to happen if we are to get to net zero. And again, that is because of this scale of physical transformation that I'm talking about. And so that's one kind of problem, right? This is a massively complex problem with fundamental transformation, the need for dramatically increased capital flows, the need for every sector of the economy to participate, every country in the world to participate in some way, shape or form. The second challenge with this, as some of our recent research highlights, is successfully getting to net zero is actually not just about one objective, which is emissions reduction but actually four objectives working in parallel. We need to reduce emissions, but we need to do so affordably. We need to do so reliably, and we need to do so in a way that maintains the competitiveness of countries and companies. Now, why am I saying that? If you imagine some of the things that need to happen towards net zero, we need consumers to be willing to adopt low emissions technologies. We need companies to transition how they are producing key materials. We need countries to adopt policies towards the transition. And all of this is much less likely to happen if the transition impairs affordability. Consumers will be less likely to switch to low emissions technologies if they are less affordable or less reliable, less viable. If we don't keep these objectives of affordability, reliability, and competitiveness in mind, there is a very real risk that momentum towards the transition is derailed. On the flip side, if we do keep these other objectives in mind, if we do actually explicitly factor that into policy into how the private sector approaches the transition, we could actually boost momentum towards the transition. And what our research finds is that there's a very real risk that if we approach this transition without keeping these objectives in mind, they are actually compromised. So if you take the energy system, for example, if we don't sufficiently invest in innovation, so you know we've seen solar and wind power costs come down, certainly, but To design this energy grid of the future, energy system of the future, we also need battery costs to come down. We need to be able to build transmission and distribution infrastructure. We need to redesign how energy markets work. And so we don't factor in the need for continued innovation, continued redesign, and we execute the transition poorly. There is a very real risk that energy prices actually don't come down and energy costs increase, right? And so this affordability imperative is compromised. As another example, If we don't keep in mind the need to build entirely new supply chains, build additional manufacturing capacity, invest in things like lithium, cobalt, all the materials that we need for this this transition, again, there is a very real risk that the reliability of supply chains, of these new supply chains that are built are compromised. Affordability of them is compromised because we run into shortages of manufactured goods or shortages of material capacity. And again, we derail momentum towards the transition. And so I say this because It's important to recognize the imperative of this physical transformation and the the increased scale-up of capital flows on the one hand that are needed, but it's also important to keep in mind these other objectives and approach this next phase of moving from commitments to actions in a very planful way, in a very deliberate way. Otherwise, we will risk derailing some of the, the great momentum we've seen in the last years. 
Right. Now, uh, a lot of this uh, that you pointed out, let's say investment in battery technology, uh, grid infrastructure, distribution is obviously happening, but perhaps not in that very coordinated way. And, and I'm, I'm assuming that when you say that, you mean at a more public policy level rather than a corporation level. So where are we falling short? As in, I mean, is it the sheer scale of it? Or is it the the planning of it, which is perhaps wanting at this point? I think it's on a few different dimensions. One is the scale of it. As I described with the, the scale of climate finance flows, we've seen an increase in climate finance, but there is still substantially more to do. One element is certainly the scale and the pace. I think the second is the recognition that there are system level transformations that need to happen that are above and beyond individual technological transformations that need to happen, right? And so one example of that is as we think about the energy system and the design of the energy system, we need to think about not just investing in solar and wind as individual technologies, but fundamentally redesigning the energy system. As another example, when it comes to supply chains, we need to actually think about, and this applies, by the way, at a policy level, but also for individual companies, we need to think about where we're going to source new materials, how we reduce the lead times associated with bringing new mining capacity online, how we build capabilities to do new refining for these materials, how we build capabilities to uh, to fundamentally scale up um, manufacturing capacity, so on and so forth. So there's, there's an entire ecosystem that needs to be built around the net zero transition that we need to plan and we need to invest in. That's the second kind of change, I think, that we need. And the third, which in some sense is a coordination problem, but in another sense is low-hanging fruit. One of the things we found in our research is there are a variety of low-cost solutions that exist today. So this is things like energy efficiency, um, material efficiency, methane reduction in oil and gas, for example, but also in, in other areas that cost less than $20 a ton, but we are simply not investing enough in. We're spending maybe less than 20% of what we need to spend in these low-cost areas. And so part of the way we need to approach the transition is also to recognize where there are these so-called low-hanging fruit today, why progress on these low-hanging fruit is not happening, and also start to unlock some of the, quote-unquote, easier-to-do things early, even as we invest in building these supply chains, planning these new systems, continuing to innovate to bring technologies down in cost. And so I think that, to me, is actually one area that we've not invested enough in. And by the way, this is a large amount of, of emissions that's, that sit in these low-cost technologies. Today, we're emitting about 55 gigatons of, of CO2 and, and methane and uh, other greenhouse gases. About 20 gigatons of that is, is what the IPCC estimates by 2030 could cost less than $20 a ton to abate. Again, we are spending less than 20% of what we need to be spending in these areas. So what's a good example of uh, that low low hanging fruit technology that could address this 20 ton target? Energy efficiency is an example of that, right? Which is something that we can do in industry, something that we can do in buildings, something that we can do in the power system. Um, and again, we're just simply not spending enough on. And it is a challenging area to address in the sense that to get this energy efficiency opportunity, we need every entity to implement some kind of measure around it. I'm sitting here in Boston it's cold outside and you need every home to rethink um, how it's doing insulation, for example. And so there is a big, again, massive distributed coordination problem. But at the same time, if we are able to overcome the hurdle in homeowners, for example, investing in things like insulation, not only does it reduce emissions, but over time it actually reduces costs for the homeowner. So again, these are examples of technologies where 
you can take out both cost and carbon at the same time. And so we just need to get over that coordination, that activation energy to get people to actually invest in these technologies. This is something actually we've been talking to a lot of companies about, right? And so companies that have made net zero commitments are starting to recognize there are these parts, if they look at their scope one, scope two, scope three emissions, their direct emissions and their indirect emissions, there are areas that exist today that allow them to take out both cost and carbon. That is, again, this low-hanging fruit that we are seeing companies start to invest in. And, and uh, I'm going to come to the finance part in a, in, in a second, but what's an example that has stood out to you when, uh, you know, in terms of a corporation that uh, has done something that, as you said, is a low-hanging fruit or maybe not so low-hanging fruit, which is worth uh, talking about? Yeah, so I, I don't want to name specific companies, but let me give you two different types of examples, right? So one type of example is work that we've done with an automotive company where we looked at the entire direct emissions and emissions in the supply chain of this automotive company and essentially almost did a teardown of the product, right, the car that was produced. And we were able to find a variety of areas, both in their direct emissions as well as in their supply chain, that allowed them to both take out, as I said, cost and carbon. And some of that was around rethinking material efficiency. Some of that was around energy efficiency measures. Some of that was switching suppliers, right? They had, there were suppliers that had better practices than others. And some of that was working with their suppliers to actually help them implement some of these kinds of measures. So that's one kind of example where we've seen a really systematic approach of looking at a product and really understanding end-to-end in the life cycle of the product where emissions come from and then one by one tackling ways to reduce those emissions. As a second kind of example, you know, there are companies that have said that while they have high emissions products today, they need to start thinking about the portfolio of investments they're making towards low emissions products. So if I'm a steel manufacturer, for example, and I have steel production that is a high emission steel, I also need to start investing in low emission steel. And we've started to see companies do portfolio reallocation, so reallocate capital within their business from these high emissions areas to low emissions areas and start to build up low emissions parts of their businesses in parallel to ramping down high emissions parts of their businesses. Now, of course, for companies, this is a challenging thing to do, right? They need to think about the pace with which they transition from high emissions to low emissions. They need to think about demand for low emissions products, whether consumers are willing to pay for any higher cost products. So it is not so much just an operational question, but also a very strategic question. But companies are starting to recognize that there is investor pressure, there is consumer demand, there is um, actually value creation to be had from such a transition. And that has really been the pivot in our conversation with private sector companies, really taking this value creation lens to say, where can you decarbonize in a way that either reduces your costs or creates new markets, new opportunities for you? And then how do you start to reallocate capital towards that? And explain to us, when we talk about climate finance, it's a very broad theme. Like, for example, let's say venture capital for climate tech is clearly rising. Uh, I saw the figure that uh, it was $70 billion last year. Uh, it, it was half of that the year before. So that's one aspect. The other is, let's say, uh, money that governments spend. And of course, then corporations themselves spend either to uh, meet their own net zero uh, emissions and pledges or the ecosystem at large. So if you could just walk us through what this looks like. When it comes to climate finance, as I said, we need a dramatic scale up of what we're spending, right? So today we're spending about one and a half trillion dollars. We need that to rise to seven trillion dollars. I break out that one and a half trillion dollars. Some of that is what one would call project finance. So it's loans, for example, to build solar and wind power projects. And I would say the vast majority of that one and a half trillion dollars is that kind of spending. But is also some amount of consumer finance. So consumers actually spending on things like electric vehicles, 
companies starting to spend some from their balance sheets towards things like the steel example, for instance, that I gave. So actually starting to change their production processes and invest in changing and retooling how they manufacture products. But the vast majority of that one and a half trillion is that that project finance for solar admin. If we think about then the scale up from the one and a half to seven trillion, what we find is that to get to that seven trillion, you actually need to think about every aspect of the financial system playing a role towards that seven trillion. Let me talk a little bit about why we aren't seeing that seven trillion happen as yet, right? And it's really for two reasons. The first is that if you think about these new low emissions technologies, for many of them, the risk return equation does not yet work relative to traditional alternatives, right? And so for capital providers, for financiers that are looking to invest in these new technologies, either they are still too risky or their 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 ability to understand the risk associated with these technologies is poor, or they feel like the, the return profile is not as attractive relative to traditional alternatives. In some instances, the issue is also that spending needs to go towards developing countries where market risk and currency risk and other factors of that kind start to manifest. One of our analyses has found that developing countries would need to spend about three times as much as a share of GDP relative to the developed world, and raising financing therefore may be harder for, for developing countries relative to the developed world. So that's one kind of challenge, which is really a supply of capital kind of challenge, right? Equally, there is a demand for capital kind of challenge. So again, if companies find that switching to low emissions technologies actually raises their production costs. The incentives to do that, to actually invest in these new technologies, to demand capital for these new technologies may be low. So we need to solve both. But if I just look at the finance challenge in particular, the supply of capital challenge in particular, I think what we find is that we need to apply the full breadth of the capital stack towards these technologies. We need project finance for solar and wind, but equally we need venture capital money to invest in, in building new companies that manufacture low emissions technologies. We need more what is called blended finance. This was another big word or big phrase at COP. We need public and private capital to come together to make some of these investments viable. So if certain low emissions technologies have a higher risk profile compared to their traditional alternatives, if investing in an emerging market is slightly riskier than investing in a developed market or perceived to be slightly riskier than investing in a developed market, you need the role of public capital to come in to then de-risk some of those investments and allow private capital to flow. And so we also need a dramatic scale up of blended finance. And then we need to think about other kinds of financial instruments, financial markets that are starting to develop, but are still relatively nascent, right? So things like voluntary carbon markets, for example, that allow capital to flow from the developed world to the developing world in many instances, uh, things like infrastructure funds towards transmission and distribution assets, now also increasing momentum towards what are called so-called brown to green funds that allow capital to go towards actually the most high emitting parts of the economy, most the most high emitting companies with the promise that those funds can then be used to decarbonize these high emitting sectors. So I think the, the biggest takeaway for me as, we, as I looked at this is it's not just one kind of unlock and one kind of one form of capital that you need towards this. You actually need the full breadth of the capital stack to be applied um, to, to get the scale of funding that we need. Right. And I'm going to come back to, as we uh, close, you know, to the surround part that you talked about at COP28 in Dubai. But uh, before that, you know, so there has been increasing skepticism about ESG funds or environmentally sustainable guidelines. I mean, depending on which definition you use or, or expansion of those words you use, but essentially funding going towards supporting or even let's say ESG funds, which were buying stocks 
which were seen as environmentally friendly. So where do we stand today as we head into a new year? I mean, is the skepticism balanced out a little bit? Is it still high? Yeah, I think there is a lot of skepticism still. And I think it's partly for a couple of different reasons, right? One is the fact that there is no standard definition for what is an ESG fund versus not, right? Um, depending on on where you look, the definition of what is good ESG versus bad ESG is in, entirely different. So I think we need to think about standards differently in this space. I think the second is a very legitimate concern that, especially if you think about the the climate transition specifically and narrowly, ESG as a mandate is a very broad mandate, right? It covers a variety of issues that extend well beyond emissions. And so if you want to make progress towards a net zero transition, you need a narrower focus, more specific direction of funds towards the transition, rather than something that is much more um, diluted and and diffuse and hard to define and hard to measure. Um, And so I think there is a little bit of a reckoning happening in in this space um, around improved standards, improved measurement, and improved ability to target on the one hand. And then I think for people that are investing in these funds, also just the ability to have demonstrable impact, both in terms of the issue that is being addressed, meaning the the either emissions reduction or ESG broadly, um, and then also the actual return from these funds, right? So I think we need a, a reckoning on both fronts, just better better standards and definitions and better demonstration of, of the impact of these funds, both in terms of the issue area being addressed, but also the return profile. Right. So all of this could lead to some good outcomes as all sides come to some kind of agreement on definitions and outcomes and so on. Okay. So if you were to look at the surround that you talked about in the beginning in and away from Dubai, what did you feel most encouraged about in terms of its execution in the nearest term possible? Yeah, I think the thing that I was most encouraged about was um, when it came to the private sector, and, and granted, I mean, that that was the, the set of stakeholders that I was most uh, closely interacting with. I observed two, three things. The first was sophistication on the conversation. So a real understanding of not just the imperative to transition, but also linking it to core business value creation, right? And, and once companies do that, then action can start to happen because it is linked to the core objective of a business, which is creating value. And so a lot of conversation with companies around how to drive decarbonization, but in a way that is consistent with their value creation imperative, whether that's reducing costs or, or um, uh, identifying new markets, et cetera. And so I really felt like that, that link had really crystallized on the part of uh, private sector companies across sectors. So that was one. The second was more conversation between financial institutions and the private sector. And so a lot of discussions around you know, how to get capital to flow, how to unlock capital towards certain technologies, how to de-risk capital. And we really need that real economy and financial institution coming together towards the transition if we are to have capital flow and a lot of conversations and dialogues around that. And then the third, which is a much more nascent conversation, but I think an important one that was, was starting to happen even with the private sector was the role of adaptation. So, you know, regardless of what we do to reduce emissions, some amount of buildup of physical risks is guaranteed because of past emissions. If you look across a whole range of IPCC scenarios, they all get to one and a half degrees Celsius by about 2030 on average, right? And so we need to manage risks at least for that one and a half degrees Celsius. And then, as I said, on our current trajectory of emissions, we aren't going to limit warming to one and a half degrees Celsius. So we also need to plan for a world where we we exceed that level of warming, especially as we're making decisions in this decade. So we're building roads, we're building bridges, companies are investing in factories, they're investing in buildings that will have 30-year lives, right, or 50-year lives. 
And so a growing recognition on the part of companies that it's not just about the transition, it's also about adaptation. I will say that conversation is is much more nascent, but I was encouraged to see that happening. And for companies, this has implications on, you know, where they locate their supply chains, how resiliently they build their facilities, um, how they think about um, protecting workers, for example, from things like rising heat and humidity levels. For certain companies that are in the infrastructure space or the construction space, their role in actually providing adaptation solutions. So conversations starting to emerge along those lines. Uh, Mikla, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me. Wonderful. Great to speak with you, Gogan. That was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter for our exclusive stories, one in-depth feature a day on www.thecore.in. Do also track us on LinkedIn, where we usually post synopses or extracts of our top stories and interviews. We would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant, including, of course, India's vibrant manufacturing sector. So write to us at feedback at the core.in. And thank you once again for listening.